0: An amnesiac suspects that he might be guilty of murder in This Movie Must Die. Welcome to the first episode of This Movie Must Die. I'm Stephen Sperling.
1: I'm Aaron Paris.
0: And I'm Josh Sperling. On This Movie Must Die, we review two movies. They must battle for our affections, but only one will survive. Which one will it be? Which one will it be? Two in the dark from 1936 or two o'clock current from 1945. Both movies are murder mysteries based on the same novel by Gillette Burgess, whose stories, books and plays were made into at least 11 movies. And one episode of the TV series Lights Out. The two movies are very similar, but there are key differences which will decide their fates. Note that our reviews do contain spoilers. So, Do you love me or hate me for making you watch the same story twice?
1: I think it's interesting that you think that plays into that decision.
0: Oh, whether or not you... (laughs) Whether or not we hate you. Oh, okay. Okay. (gasps) Okay. Well, so what I want to know, I'll have to ask later in a different way. (laughs) Two in the Dark. We're uh, We're going to review that first. Again, this is from 1936. Our protagonist is an amnesiac. And we meet him fresh from the knock on his head that causes him to lose his memory and forget who he is. He's wandering through the park at night where he happens to meet an actress down on her luck. Uh, Her name is Marie Smith. The two of them soon team up to solve the mystery of who he is. The situation quickly turns bleak when one of their first clues leads them to the possibility that he murdered a theater producer named Richard Denning. But she's more confident than he is that he is not capable of murder. So any general comments about this movie before we we start talking about the actors and the characters?
2: I really did like, and this is probably Good point to to talk about that. Uh, the the way it opens right after the credits, it shows his eyes, blood on his head, and then slowly the background comes into focus. And I I really did like that.
0: Yeah, I like that too. Um, as we'll find out later, this movie is is perhaps not not that it's better or worse, but this movie is perhaps a bit more stylish mm-hmm. uh, than the second movie. Uh, there's also a cool shot where the main character has his hands over his eyes. Yeah, and we see from his point of view, a girl on the other side of him, and and he slowly drops his fingers and we we see that along with him. It's a good effect.
1: I, I really liked the story itself. I really thought that it had a, a solid plot. It was interesting. However, you know, as we go along, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that I found it lacking and, and clunky, at least from somebody who's not used to watching movies like this
0: yes yes i thought it was very interesting that uh, you probably have not seen a movie for like this and you probably haven't seen two movies from uh or, i'm sorry too many movies from this era
1: i am not the you know the film buff that you and josh are mostly so Stephen.
2: pardon mostly steven
1: mostly steven i'm sorry <laughs> steven i put you in the same camp as josh <laughs> Uh, but I'm a, I'm a no, junior but,
2: film snob. But
1: you know, so my comments will not be quite as highbrow, and my take on the movies will not be as as technical. Which is
2: uh, what
0: we want. We want you here because you're dumb. <laughs> burn uh, right from the beginning. No, I know, right?
1: no. I, I am in the burn unit. No, at this point. no.
0: You because you're smart and you have a an average person's take on this. Our leading man is Walter Abel, who was mainly on stage for the first two decades of his career. He's nearly 40 here, but he looks younger, at least to me. He appeared in some silent films as early as 1918. His career as a leading man in B pictures and supporting actor in A, a movies eventually gave way to him becoming a character actor. His last movie was in 1984, and he died a few years later.
2: I thought he was a good choice, and I uh, actually didn't realize that he was that old, so he must have looked younger to me as well.
1: I liked him better than the actor that played the same character in the other movie.
0: Yeah, when we get to that, I'll, I'll be making the same point and, this, and explain exactly why.
1: I just felt like he was more natural in what yes. he was doing.
0: Yeah, I, 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 yeah,
1: I, I identified with him better.
0: I'll talk about it. I, I like the second actor fine, but if I were going to judge the movie purely by the two actors, I would favor in front of this one. I did want to point out one thing. He looked to me exactly like Cesar Romero. Um, <laughs> since you're used to him with the Joker makeup, maybe you, you didn't notice that or you're also not used to him this young, but he he was about the same, a little bit younger than Walter Abel and probably at that time looked very, very similar. I leading lady is margot graham she was born in england grew up in south africa where she received her stage training and was the highest paid actress in british films before she moved to hollywood she starred with abel a year earlier in the three musketeers where she was lady de winter to his d'artagnan a little over 10 years later they were the stars of the fabulous joe which was about a talking dog would you have rather watched that movie a fabulous joe you like talking Uh dogs
2: If they would have renamed it a talking dog, question mark, exclamation, question mark. Yes. I I would, I would like to watch that. But I need
1: that punctuation.
2: Yes. A talking dog?
0: Yeah. That that might be a good pair up for us. Uh, The fabulous Joe and a talking cat? I'm on board.
1: If you make me watch that movie again, I'll hurt you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now my opinion on her is that it's a good performance, but not ideally cast. I thought the role, she should have been a bit more street and that's, that's actually something that's corrected in the second film. Uh yeah. you may not know this name, but uh Joan Blondell type, I, I think would have been really good for that role. She was um, I think she was way too cultured. I would have preferred a character who's a bit more American, a bit more down to earth, and that's what we got in the in the second film, as we'll come to later.
1: And she was boring, Stephen, I believe is the the word you're looking
0: for. You were boring. I no, I didn't find her boring. I <laughs> she I, is I liked boring,
1: her. she was wooden, she was out of place, uh, clearly the best dressed homeless person.
0: Oh my I've God. Ever seen. <laughs> and
1: I, I just thought, is she just, just yeah, she wasn't really engaged, in my opinion, the whole way. She was just like along for the ride. And I think that she should have dove in and done a little more. And then maybe I'd like her better, but
0: I don't. Her meticulous wardrobe as a homeless woman uh, was not her fault. <laughs> Uh, We might as well get to that point now, because that's the one that's the one part that I would consider a bad laugh. When later in the film, she finally changes her clothes and uh, our amnesiac says, uh, why, you're beautiful. As if her new costume (laughs) is not is that much better than her previous one. I I didn't even notice a difference. And you
1: know what? The outfit didn't help. She was still a little on the homely side, in my opinion.
0: Oh, I didn't think she was homely. I thought she was way too she just she just looked way too done up for a homeless woman. Did, did I explain what happens to her her character yet? Because what, what happens is she meets her amnesiac in the park and she's she's homeless because her landlady has thrown her out for than not. So I guess it's plausible that she looks well put together.
2: Right. We have to keep in mind she's not a person who's habitually homeless or she's been out on the streets for months. She just she's just a, a regular person who couldn't come up with her rent that month right but later we find out that we were supposed to have not seen her as beautiful
0: because it's just like the moment in a film where the the plane girl takes off her glasses and turns out to be gorgeous
2: right yeah and and to me it was a really bizarre moment because i didn't even realize that he was supposed to suddenly see her as beautiful because her outfit was different to me it didn't seem any different and i thought What what is going on with his memory? He can't even remember that she was the same woman in the park. You're suddenly beautiful.
0: Before he sees her, the reporter, character we'll get to, the reporter sees her, knows that she suddenly has prosperity about her torso. And I didn't know what the hell that
2: meant at first. I don't even think I caught that line. Prosperity about her torso. I
1: think it means that he actually noticed that she has boobs, gentlemen.
2: Uh,
0: now that's something Josh would know and not me. I don't... Uh... I don't it's get into it.
2: It's that. a nice '30s way of saying nice hooters.
1: Yes, basically, that's oh. what they're saying. He,
0: he was he was reporting on her outfit as if that outfit was any better or worse than the the first one. I thought they were both fine outfits, but <laughs> she it was just so absurd.
1: I think one is supposed to be more buttoned up than. Than the
0: other, I guess, but man, that's just it, just wasn't much of a difference. Uh, we'll get to another character who has an interesting wardrobe choice later. I, I did not dislike her performance as much as you did, Aaron, but I did like that her character is cynical in a way, but she's an honest and good hearted person, even though she's hungry. She insists they go to the police station before he buys her a plate of ham and eggs at the diner. Uh, right. later he gives her a lot of money to hold for him and there's not the slightest hint that she's gonna run off with it i mean if I were in her position i would just i would i would just be in dire straits when she first meets him in the park she doesn't look at him as if oh my god maybe he can help me you know? right she doesn't panic as I would have in that in that situation right
1: she's playing the long game <laughs> you know don't don't take him for four or five hundred dollars when you think you can hitch that wagon and have the money for life don't be stupid
2: Well, while we're still on them sitting in the park, the one thing I, I thought was weird, and maybe one of you can answer this question, is he doesn't know, of course, anything about himself and she's trying to help him and he wonders if he's married and she cannot help him. And I'm thinking in the 30s and then later when we get into the next from the 40s, this is repeated. I'm sure it must have been standard at that time in the 30s and especially in the 40s for a man to have a wedding band and he would know whether he's married or not. No. That's not true. No,
0: wedding bands did not become standard until later, maybe the 50s. I, I can't remember what point a wedding band became standard, but uh, it would not have been surprising in the 30s or 40s that he simply didn't have one. I don't know if anybody did have them at all during that time, but the lack of one would not have meant of anything.
2: Hmm. Okay, because yeah, I thought wedding bands became a thing in say like the late 19th century. And then I, I so I assume that By the 30s or the 40s, surely it had to be standard by that point. I thought
1: the same. But
2: Stephen is the expert on wedding bands. I I am the
0: expert on weddings and wedding bands. So just uh, next time you guys get married... Just let me know, and I'll I'll give you some advice. But to um, each other or separately? I just assume that it would be um, to each other, but maybe I don't know what's going on here. Um, um,
1: but I think for women, because De Beers had that big push, and they're the ones that got the whole engagement thing rolling. And I thought that was after world war Two, maybe
0: now are you you're talking about engagement rings right because yeah at first they were just wedding rings and mm-hmm. then there were engagement rings and the jewelry industry pushed this yeah i guess
1: but anyway yeah i thought it was weird too because my thought
0: was well aren't you wearing a ring i don't know if in the, either film they explain why he doesn't have any identification on him um,
2: yeah that's uh, that's actually strange it never even occurred to me i don't know why that didn't occur to me
1: well i mean i guess i don't know when did people start having driver's licenses
0: I, I, that, that I don't know. but it, it, Because uh, if
1: he's supposed to be the chauffeur at one point.
0: He wasn't the chauffeur. No, he was not the chauffeur. He he might have been the chauffeur. That might have been one of his well, identities. But
1: my point is, is, if you don't have that license on you, then you could probably assume that you weren't the chauffeur because you don't have what's needed to drive.
2: Unless he just didn't have his identification on him. He had no idea wh- where, where he was and how he yeah, got there. Yeah, but and... he would
1: take your ID and leave money behind in your pocket if you got mugged that'd be kind of weird
2: well i mean he could have left it somewhere Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i don't know when or if people carried identification around that time so rather than try to describe the complicated plot i'm going to talk about the characters that we meet along the way and at the end we'll we'll tell you which one did the thing the thing (laughs) yeah the thing the thing we're not going to tell you what the thing is yet Uh, it's murder a cop in the park has the leads moving from park bench to park bench. Apparently they're allowed to walk in the park, but not sit on the park benches that late at night. And I really hated that cop for just making them <laughs> do that. He's played by Ward Bond, a familiar character actor, especially in films directed by John Ford. We don't see him again after the first scene, so he is not the killer. The amnesiac buys a new suit from, Mr. from a Mr. Pinkley, who fancies himself an amateur criminologist. But even though the police are looking for a man in a pinstripe suit, he doesn't notice that his customer had just been wearing one. Pinkley is played by Arthur Hoyt, who was a prolific actor and director in The Silent Era and a familiar character actor during the talkies. Any particular thoughts about Mr. Pinkley, played by Arthur Hoyt?
2: Yeah, I like that character. It was interesting enough to sort of drive the um, the tension. You know, he's nervous that this guy is going to catch him because he, he fancies himself a criminologist. Yeah. yeah,
1: I noticed they they kept that pretty consistent between the two. And I do think it was needed to push it along.
0: Did you uh, notice that he pronounced Brooklyn as Brookline and Walter Abel did the same thing later? No, didn't notice. You didn't notice. You didn't notice that? Maybe maybe when he talked about Brookline, you had no idea that he was talking about Brooklyn. <laughs> Could be. In fact, I, I guess there's even a possibility that he wasn't talking about Brooklyn. but uh,
2: Well, there's um, a possibility that it was actually pronounced Brookline
0: back then. The reason Marie Smith is out on the street is because she couldn't play her haughty. It was because she couldn't pay, not play she couldn't pay her haughty landlady uh, played by Nora Cecil. Her prolific movie credits begin in 1915 and end in 1947. I liked her character. My favorite moment of hers is when Walter Abel gives her a phony name, David Robbins, and she turns up her nose at it. And I don't know if it's because she didn't believe the phony name or because she didn't like the name David Robbins. I don't know, but she was, uh, she was haughty. She was full of haught. Did you agree that she was full of haught?
1: Sure. Okay,
0: good. <laughs> and she, uh, she uses the word word antimacassers uh, which I also like I don't think I've ever heard that pronounced it's the cloth that you put all over your chair to prevent people's hair oils from uh, from soiling it
1: I thought that was just a doily
0: it's also a doily but she called them antimacass macas- I can't say it antimacassers well Ant- I
1: guess the haughty are the folks that get to decide what words are mm-hmm
0: Indeed, you do. Uh, bribable Housekeepers, played by Fern Emmett, who looks like Margaret Hamilton. Did you think that or notice that? I did not.
1: I thought oh. it was her. Oh, you did really? Uh huh. Oh, and that's then, funny. And then Josh made fun of me. <laughs> do
0: that. Uh, Inspector Florio, who is on the Richard Denning murder, is played by Alan Hale. He appeared in a number of well-loved classic movies, but he may be most recognizable by proxy. His son, Alan Hale Jr., who looked nearly identical to him, played the skipper in Gilligan's Island. Did you see the skipper in The Father?
2: Oh, yeah. I was actually hoping that it
0: was the real skipper. No, I didn't okay. notice. Little buddy! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He never said little buddy once. He, know, he could have said it to yeah. the to the reporter character who's his uh, sidekick. The guy's a lot smaller. And as I said, Florio is trailed everywhere by a wise guy reporter named Hillier, played by Wallace Ford. For the first half of his career, Ford was a breezy wisecracker, like in this film. And for the second half, he was a grizzled old-timer. His early life was Dickensian. He lived in 17 foster homes before the age of 11 when he oh. ran away to join a Vaudeville troupe. Again, I was baffled by the line i can't get over the sudden rush of prosperity to your torso that's exactly what he says to her when she's in the new dress and i'm like what well prosperity about her torso (laughs) there's also a good exchange he says if i'm wrong it's the first time since i was born and she says and then your parents were wrong i laughed yeah i
2: we said this
1: yep that's what we said i just want to say that i thought that that news reporter was so annoying that that superseded any little minute funniness he might have brought to the <laughs> film. Oh, I, I mean, I couldn't even. It, it was almost to the point that I'm like, if he doesn't shut his mouth, I'm gonna shut this off.
2: Oh, I, I didn't find him bad in this one at all, and I- even if I did, I would have appreciated. His subtle humor so much more after watching the remake. Oh
1: yeah. The, the, <laughs> yes. Oh, the remake was way worse. So yeah, I'm still in therapy over that one. Oh okay.
0: But. Okay. Well, that's interesting you say that because there there are other films I've seen him in in which the same basic personality is way overpowering. I didn't I didn't find it to be such in this case. But but it is noted that you have uh, demeaned an orphan. He was an orphan. So terrible.
1: Well. I mean, it's just so unrealistic. There's no police on the planet that's going to involve some newspaper guy in their investigation. He has no reason to be there. And he actually just gets in the way of keeping track of all of the characters and the people. There's enough going on. I didn't need him there, too.
0: You know, that's a, that's a standard trope in a lot of these old movies of the time, the reporter who's just there all the time. Usually the lead cop, the lead inspector, makes more of an effort to get rid of the guy. Right. Does in this case, but even still we see it a lot. And I, I have no idea if that's just a movie trope or if that actually happened. I'm, I'm sure that back then they were more casual about how they treated crime scenes. I mean, we see it now and we're like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I, I don't think that was unrealistic, though. I really don't.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I thought it was odd that they were including him, purposely including him quite so much when, yeah, normally in these types of films, you see them, you know, uh, get away from me. Hell yeah, you're getting in the way. and Yeah, they, they definitely annoy each other, but Cop lets him tag along and
0: the guy does offer some useful opinions, I guess, annoying as he might be, but
2: right. And I think, you know, for for what his purpose is in the movie, Aaron says that, you know, he's just getting in the way because there are a lot of different characters to keep track of. But he, he he is helpful for us sometimes to sort of summarize what's going on when he's telling uh his editor or and, and this is especially true in the remake that uh sometimes it is helpful for when he's saying, Okay, now this is going on, okay, now this is going on, that we sort of it 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 helps us. And I think that's Particularly needed in a, in a film like this where there's a lot of stuff going on. You need someone to sort of narrate.
1: You know, and, and one of the things, and maybe Josh and I are jumping around a little bit on you, Stephen, but one of the things that uh, I found frustrating as I was trying to watch this is they would talk about people that we had not seen yet. So I had no, you know, face to go with the name, which makes it almost impossible to keep track of who's actually doing what because you can't link the two. Josh and I kept having to stop the movie over and over again, go through our notes and try to figure out who they're talking
2: about. Right. And obviously when this was originally shown, nobody was um, yelling to the projector to, to stop for a minute so they can what? all <laughs> confirm. Now, wh- wh- who's Reed again? Who is
1: this and and why is he this? Na- well, you know, and, and like I said, it, it just, uh, you don't talk about people you haven't shown. And to me, that should be just a fundamental way to shoot a movie.
0: Yeah, we can talk, uh, w- when we get to the second film, we'll talk about which one was easier to follow. I watched this one straight through and I followed it well enough that I could enjoy it. But there were a lot of things that I did not notice until I watched it a second time. But w- again, we'll get to which one was easier to follow once we get to the remake. So the late Richard Denning's butler, Fish, is played by Eric Bloor, who played many, many butlers in the movies. Disney fans will recognize his distinctive British voice as that of Mr. Toad in their adaptation of The Wind and the Willows. Any particular thoughts about Eric Bloor?
2: Uh, yeah, I thought he, he did a good job. Uh, I didn't recognize his voice as uh, Mr. Toad, but he did seem familiar probably because because I've seen other things uh, with him as the butler.
0: Yeah, he has a very distinctive voice, very distinctive uh, comedy style. He's pretty Mm -hmm. much always the same in every movie and he's very often a butler.
1: Yeah, I mean, the comedy seemed a little forced to me, but I think that's kind of standard for this movie as a whole. So in that aspect, he did fine.
0: Did you sympathize with Fish the butler
2: for having sciatica?
1: I had actually blocked that out, but thanks for bringing it up.
2: (laughs) Okay, you're welcome. Don't talk about an old man's sciatica! (laughs) That's <laughs> rule number one. It's rule sciatica club. It, <laughs> don't talk, talk about, about sciatica.
0: <laughs> we meet an overdramatic Italian, Carlo Geet, who is more offended that the inspector calls his violin a fiddle than he is <laughs> when he's accused of murder. Played by American actor Eric Rhodes, best known for a similar role in the Astaire Rogers
2: musical Top Hat. What did you think of Carlo Geet? Yeah, I don't know how necessary. I mean, I thought he did a fine job, but as far as what the purpose of his character was I don't know that that was necessary. Obviously, he was not. That character did not come into the second film. Yeah,
1: it, it didn't go anywhere, as far as I remember. In the first film, I think that whole thing should have been cut out. And like I said, there's enough people going on in here that we don't need extra people to make a joke about a fiddle.
0: It's it's a shame that he is superfluous. He really should have been cut. Because the first time I watched, I thought that he that he had some kind of a point that I that I didn't notice, but when I watched it again, there, there's, there's no real point to his character except, uh, I guess, a red herring. Uh, yeah, but uh, he,
1: he never comes back.
0: Right, they easily could have cut out that scene. I do find that actor very funny. He's hilarious to me, at least, in uh, Top Hat. And I found him funny in this one, but still, he could have been cut out. There's another stage actress in this film, not just... I mean, another stage actress who's a character. This one is played by Olga... Oh, no, no, this, this one is named Olga Konar. The, she was an actress in in a play that are amnesiac had gone to see before he had his accident. She is played by Aaron O'Brien Moore. Uh, no relation to our fine Aaron here. She was a beautiful second lead in films opposite top stars, including Humphrey Bogart. In 1939, she was burned in a restaurant fire. After years of painful reconstructive surgery, she returned to acting in the late 1940s and is best remembered as Nurse Choate or maybe Coet in the TV series Peyton Place. Anyway, uh, Burt Manson is the jealous husband of Olga, the other stage actress. Uh, she's played, or he, I'm sorry. He's played by uh, Jay Carroll Nash, an extraordinarily versatile character actor who knew eight languages and played characters of all races and nationalities. I've seen him over and over again. And every time he appears, I do not recognize him. I don't think he, I don't think he really uh, was in this film long enough to make an impression, but there he was J. Carol Nash, just so you know. And when you see him again, you won't recognize him. The Amnesiac first learns his nickname Jitney from a cute clothes horse, as Marie calls her named irene lassiter she's wearing a stylish outfit that makes her look like what a toreador i don't know what that's supposed to be
1: <laughs> i think it could mean hoochie
0: hoochie
2: hoochie
1: Hoo-chi. yeah, maybe it. it might be
2: do, do you not know what a hoochie is is that what you're saying steve i don't know what a hoochie is uh it's a tramp a trollop a oh, tar- was, <laughs> she,
0: she, that wasn't a trollops outfit it didn't reveal anything it was just it was well, just she
1: know. was available
0: that that outfit did not scream available
2: to me. It screamed bullfighter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm with you, Stephen. I, I, I saw no sign of hoochieism. She okay. was
1: totally, she was all, oh, I don't even have words. For I, I'm ability. talking about her
2: outfit, not her demeanor because she, yeah, the outfit she, makes, she was very available.
1: The outfit makes otherwise. the woman. I'm telling you that's how it works.
2: I think the woman should make the outfit.
0: I think she made the outfit because she did come off. She was obviously extremely available, as we found out. I mean, it mm-hmm. just took her an instant to uh, to go for another guy in the film uh, who we'll talk about in a minute. But I saw enough hoochie-ish about the clothes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, she's played by Gail Patrick, who usually played more hard-bitten roles. Uh, later in life, she became executive producer of the Perry Mason TV series. Our amnesiac has an old college friend named Stuart Eldridge, a playwright, or is he, played by Leslie Fenton. So this was an interesting character. We don't know what's going on here. The actor playing him he has a number of roles but uh, he think he has the appropriately he has like a mix of, of of good looks and sliminess. I thought
1: I kept calling him Weird Mouth because it's like when he talked, he looked like a little like weird puppet. He just looked weird to me.
2: Aaron came up with shorthand names for all these characters. Because oh, that's that's
0: probably you know. helpful. That's where you should probably do that more often in, in, uh, in other films. Uh, and she's just like now the hoochie, uh, she's with the <laughs> Weird Mouth guy, right? <laughs> that's good. That's exactly what you should do, I think. And I kept
1: calling Konar Klingon. You know, <laughs> just, just for my own amusement, at some point, <laughs> I'm like I got to make myself laugh as I'm watching this thing. Because so, audience...
2: Butler did not make you laugh
0: enough. Yeah, yeah. He he almost looks like a handsome guy, but there is something weird about him. I didn't I didn't notice it was his mouth that it was making him weird, but something just made him look slimy. He
2: was appropriately slimy. I, uh, I think that's the best description. You know that people how people would love to be described. You know, I almost look like a handsome man. You know you go on to love connection or 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 the things that you you do you and you say hi i'm bob and i'm i almost look like a handsome man but not quite but not quite there's a little bit of slime slime. involved (laughs) i have a good mixture
0: of good looks and slime Slime. yes if you like to slip around
1: Okay.
0: No. <laughs> okay. There's an interesting point about this particular suspect. He, uh, the the he the amnesiac finds out, that, uh, again, that he's, uh, this guy is an old college friend, and they talk about a mutual college friend named Ken who died of tomain poisoning. This man wrote a play called Two O'Clock Courage, which we later learn, I'll go ahead and uh, reveal it now, we, la- later learn was plagiarized by Eldridge, the, the slimy good-looking man, as a uh, play called Dark Menace. Now one thing th- there's there's like a, a a parallel situation in the next film, but in neither film is it revealed whether or not he killed this person. In the, in the first film the playwright dies of tomain poisoning. In the second one, it's an overdose of pills, but I suspect in both cases
2: he did kill this playwright. Oh yeah, that the thought hadn't really occurred to me. I I guess it makes sense that they don't seem to well, I don't I don't think in either film things are very subtle. So in that's my true, mind in my mind, it's probably not where they were going. I mean, it's certainly possible, but uh, I think if they wanted you, if that were really true, they would lean more on that clue, the possibility. It's it seemed to me he was just taking advantage of the situation. Oh, this guy's dead. Oh, he doesn't need this play yeah, anymore.
1: I, I totally agree with Josh. That was that was my takeaway for for both films. Yeah, was and that, it, that
0: that that could easily be the case. Because
1: you... in all honesty, it was like going the pill route and putting that much effort into it. That's uh, too hard.
0: <laughs> I don't. Yeah, and I don't know what what have taken to uh poison somebody with tomein i think it was this fish or something I, i i don't remember but i don't know how much trouble that would be i've never tried it not yet
1: i just i just got the impression that weird mouth his you know his character always did the minimum it just sometimes the minimum got a little out of hand yeah but it wasn't it wasn't what he really wanted to do he just wanted to sit around and
2: i think by next week uh you should experiment with Tomaine and that could be the sponsor of this uh podcast sponsored by Tomaine.
0: i don't know if i don't know if they sponsor podcasts but i'll i'll find out look into it okay so we, we will now reveal that among all these suspects it does at first at least seem that the killer is uh, Weird Mouth. Um... Weirdmouth weird mouth is the killer and the reason he he uh killed the producer Richard Denning is because uh Richard Denning was cheating him or not not really cheating him but uh screwing him over out of royalties. He was blackmailing him because he found out that his play Dark Menace was uh plagiarized from this old college friend that we mentioned who died of thallium poisoning Ken Olmy I think the name was in this in this film. So for so when this is revealed, he apparently goes goes into his bedroom ostensibly to change his coat, but apparently he commits suicide. That's what we think at first. He shoots himself in the head, but then the, the characters immediately find out that somebody else must have killed him because his his own gun had not been fired. And I I everything up to the suicide was fine plot-wise, but I didn't like the little tag they added at the end where it turns out that that Olga, the, the actress, ended up killing him because he knew that she really killed Richard Denning for the love letters. There were some love letters that were briefly mentioned earlier. And so she shot him so that he wouldn't, he wouldn't ride her out. I didn't really like that
2: tag. I mean, I think it's just another level of, you know, uh, a belief that you need to suspend. And I think the further the the film goes along, there's, there's more that you have to go. Okay. Maybe. Okay. You know, which I think for this one just works like it's good despite it, but yeah, definitely the whole amnesia thing I think is uh, of course tiresome, now, but I, I don't know about how, how tiresome it had grown by the 30s. It, it uh, requires a, a, a certain amount of suspension of disbelief, and the fact that he, he gets hit on the head to begin with, and they think he maybe he's dead, and then he has amnesia, and then later they shoot him, and he still won't die. You know, it gets a little bit more far-fetched that the two of them are, are in collusion together seems unnecessarily complicated.
0: Yeah, I, I, I forgot to mention that he regains his memory at at one point when when the weird mouth shoots him in the head and thinks he's killed him, but he hasn't killed him. He's only grazed him and then the guy's memories come back and that's how the mystery gets solved. I forgot to mention that part. Like the suspension of disbelief. I think I first saw that trope in a Tom and Jerry cartoon where um <laughs> Tom gets hit on the head, loses his memory. No, 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 actually in that cartoon Uh, Tom gets hit on the head and then thinks he's a mouse.
2: Oh, I remember that one. Remember that one? Yeah, but
0: when he gets hit on the head again, he knows he's a cat. And so that's... That's it doesn't he squeeze
2: that. himself through the mouse hole to get yes. into, which if he's capable of doing that, I don't know why he didn't do it when he thought he was a cat. Because he was hypnotized into believing in himself as a
0: mouse. Oh. And you, once you believe in yourself, once you believe something, you can make it happen.
1: Every time?
2: Every person, every time. Every, every person? Yes, every yes.
0: time. Just, uh, just like in uh, The Secret. Everyone, yes. every time. Every Tom second. must have been a fan. Yes, I think so. I think so. I just saw a crazy cat cartoon where um, a mouse hypnotizes himself into thinking he's a bird and he flies. And I, I believe that. I don't think, uh, I don't think that's too outrageous. Right, I so-
1: think, you know, I think by, you know, having two killers, it was like they were trying to be something more than they were. And it, all it did was it made it convoluted. And I think it, it made the ending not tidy or, or it wasn't satisfying at all. It, it, you still, weren't entirely sure who shot who but all you knew is you had one person left over that you could send to jail. So there we go. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Uh,
1: you know, and that's just kind of. Oh, and before we close on this one, I want to talk about the hat.
2: Yes, definitely. Which we, w- hat? We, what hat?
1: We want to talk about the fact that actually in both movies, the main guy's his hat had what was it? D D B
2: R D or D R? They weren't sure.
1: R D or D R? Oh, yes, in yes. It.
2: Which, of course, they think could be Richard Denning. They think could be Duke Uh, Reed. Duke Duke Reed, Reed, yeah.
1: There is no way... Now, we've watched two and took notes. There is no reason that he should have that hat.
0: Oh, I know. I thought maybe I missed something.
2: No, yeah, that's, I... what, that's what we thought too.
1: And I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about it because I don't like just nonsense. And that was nonsense.
2: Right, because it was such an important thing that, and and, and I like that at the beginning that, you know, they don't know whether he's D R R D. And Yeah, I liked it too. Yeah, and so, but it, it would have been very easy to explain since they do show you, okay, he grabbed the cigarettes. That's why he has this unusual brand of cigarettes is because the, the cigarettes both that the chauffeur was uh, had and, you know, our mystery man had the uh, they were both this unusual brand because they both got them from Denning.
1: Oh, I mean, and you and I had tossed around the idea in the very beginning, you know, did he trade clothes with somebody? Yeah. And so when that didn't pan out either, it was like they had spent a bunch of time, in my opinion, focusing on this hat mm-hmm. that really meant nothing. And, and I'm like, so all you've done is add another component to this mess that I have to sort through.
2: Which, which could have easily been explained because, you know, he got hit on the head. He falls over. His hat falls off. He yes. stands up. He doesn't know where he is. He grabs what he thinks is his hat, which would be Denning's hat because it's sitting on his desk. He puts it on his head and that would have explained it.
1: Yeah, but Denning wasn't wearing his hat when they were talking.
2: Right, but I'm saying they could have oh, made that the like thing that he... That Denning had put his hat down on the desk, gone in there to talk to him. And then when, yeah. Yeah, uh,
0: and that's probably what happened. It seems very plausible that that could have happened. Right. Uh, but they really, they really should have said that explicitly. And it's it's weird that in both movies they don't. Well,
1: right. And and also the concept that Denning was going to go to a hotel and pick up somebody who wanted to confront him about plagiarism, take him to his house to have a discussion on money and paying somebody off and this and that. That's legal action. That's that's stupid, too.
2: Uh, I, that didn't bother me because I would think he would want to get it resolved because if he doesn't, think he's going to go to the police.
1: But you want to take him to your house.
0: I've, I've got him right now in my house. He's right here. We'll have him weigh in on this.
2: What do you think of that?
1: <laughs>
2: uh, uh, <laughs> he told me. Yeah, so the, so the end, I thought, um, like Aaron was saying, there was a lot of just information, information you know, uh, uh, thrown at you and then it just ends abruptly. I think if you're going to cram that much information at the end, there really needs to be a little bit more of a wrap up, not the sort of tired, you know, spoon fed ending that goes on and on like some films do, but at at least a little bit.
1: Yeah, but it, it did that through the whole movie. You've had these long stretches of like nothing important and then they would just vomit all of this information at you in like a minute and a half about people you've never seen. And then you'd have more long stretches of nothing and then more vomit and it's Mm -hmm. like people can't, it just, I needed a little bit at a time spaced out, a little more interweaving, not just, you know, when they picked up the chauffeur and put him in the car, that's a prime example.
0: Yes. Yes. Because we hear about the chauffeur. uh, He's another, he's another suspect, by the way, dear audience. When we hear about the chauffeur, it's, it's long before we finally meet him. And, and I was so confused the first time, to be honest, that I, I, I thought later, wait a minute did we ever meet the chauffeur and it turns out when i rewatched it that we we did
1: and then even what he says in the car with the police he rattles off so much information there's no way to keep it right it's sort
2: of wrapping up the yeah i slashed the tires yeah i stole these cigarettes that's why and that so it's like here's explanation explanation for this here's an explanation for this and then we're moving on to while we're still trying to wrap our minds around wait who is this guy again and he's going mansfield mansfield's the one that. You've got to go over and find Mansfield, and then we're trying to remember. Okay, we did meet a Mansfield at some point, but who was that again? Yeah, yeah, and I yeah, still was... don't know. Don't <laughs> know who Mansfield is. Yeah, I, I think,
0: I think I pretty much uh, figured out all the the plot elements, but it did take twice for the first one. Now it's impossible to know whether or not I would have understood everything so clearly for the second film, but I get the feeling that I might have followed that one easier, even if I had watched it first. But we'll, we'll get to that. The last thing I want to say about this one, our director is Benjamin Stoloff, who directed, who mainly directed B-pictures from 1928 to 1951. Then his IMDb credits, uh, Jump, to 1960, when he directed 26 episodes of a TV series called Home Run Derby. He died in 1960. Screenplay was adapted by Seton I. Miller, who has a number of distinguished credits, including uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, also with Alan Hale, by the way. And he also wrote the story that was adapted into two movies called Pete's Dragon. So, did you see any uh, did you see any correlation between this
2: film and Pete's Dragon? What wasn't like Pete's Dragon? That's that's a better question. Well,
0: except for the lack of the dragon and the lack of Pete, I I think they were almost the same movie
2: if you want to nitpick yeah
0: and so any other any other thoughts about uh, well i guess now we can uh, give our thumbs up thumbs down on this film i agree with most of the criticisms that you two have made i i i liked i like the lead actress better than aaron did but as we'll find out not quite as much as the next one
2: but i do give this a thumbs up yeah i agree with everything except for the hoochie dress which i disagree strongly not, about
0: yes it's just it's i don't even know what hoochie means but it's just not Gucci
2: and you know of course I gave it a lot of criticism because that's what I do according to my niece I hate everything every movie so that's why I have to criticize it even though I actually give this one a thumbs up
1: oh I give this one a thumbs down simply because it was convoluted and you had the information vomit okay thumbs down
0: yeah I, I I and I agree with you that it was cut co- <laughs> <laughs> it's making me sick. It's how convoluted it was. Did you die? But, uh, but I came back to life. Don't worry. Ugh. Or maybe, <laughs> you're, maybe you're worried that I would come back to life.
2: I think he was just just uh, uh, giving an example of how you can vomit up um, uh, too much information all at once.
0: Yes. Yes. I, w- I wanted to give uh, uh, an uh Isn't audio. that like this whole show? The, yeah. that's oh, I'm afraid so. Yeah, wow. Yeah.
2: Wow. Criticizing wow. the show during the show. Yeah. That's supposed to be in the press after word
0: <laughs> two o'clock courage that is our next film from nineteen forty five i'm not sure if i mentioned that the play that was p- plagiarized in in the first film was called two o'clock courage i don't know if i mentioned that and this time the movie is just titled after the play that gets plagiarized, uh, same title. Now,
2: now, do courage. you know, uh, what was the novel called? Two O'Clock Courage. Okay, so do you do you know why they changed it to Two in the Dark for the first no. uh, film version? No, I don't. I
0: guess it makes more sense. I, I, I couldn't find the meaning of this phrase, Two O'Clock Courage, but I'm pretty sure that it refers to the drink you have around two o'clock to get you through the rest of the day.
2: Okay, that makes sense. In this film, one of the characters says, I could use some Two O'Clock Courage.
0: Yes, yes. And and the other character says, "Not you don't want to do that now.
1: We should bring that back.
0: Two o'clock courage?
2: The drinking or or the phrase? Both. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll right do now. What I can.
0: I'll, yeah, right now, right this second. It is bring two it o'clock, isn't it? it? No, it's not two o'clock. It's two o'clock somewhere.
1: I'm just saying I could use some now. Okay. So go ahead, Stephen.
0: All right, fine. <laughs> Our amnesiac hero this time is played by Tom Conway, born in Russia, but whose wealthy Family was driven out by the Bolsheviks. Thumbs up or thumbs down on Bolsheviks, uh, real quick.
2: No thumbs, all toes. Okay.
0: I guess Aaron's not going to answer that one. She uh, said boo. I said boo. Pay attention. Oh, why well, I didn't know if boo meant good or bad. I mean, uh, scary. Yeah, scary. After a number of failed careers, he wandered into theater and later Hollywood, along with his better-known younger brother, George Sanders. Uh, his big break came when his brother abandoned the role of the Falcon in the 1940s movie series of that name, and he, Tom Conway, took it over. His credits also include uh, three Val Luton Horror. Horror classics but he was in a he was in a wide variety of films a uh, lot of movies and he died a drunk our hero, heroine is patty mitchell played by ann rutherford uh, best known for appearing in the andy hardy movie series with mickey rooney in the 1990s she turned down the role of the older rose in titanic a part that went to Gloria Stewart and gave her renewed fame. I want to compare the two leading ladies, as I said I was going to do. And I really liked number one, I like the twist on the character. This one is also a stage actress, an ex stage actress, but she is a taxi driver when we meet her. And I really like that. How would you compare these two? actresses, two characters.
1: Okay. I really liked this one better for a couple reasons. Uh, more because she was definitely more spunky than the yes. other. And, yes. you know, she's literally following and helping some guy who may or may not be a murderer. You, you don't, you know, you got to have a certain amount of zip to, to do that, to yes. be brave enough to do that. And I like that she, you know, she had a job. She wasn't just this person that just kind of floated along. She really kind of led in a lot of ways. And yeah. I liked that she didn't need him to rescue her really in any aspect. And and um, at least that was my take on it. And um, I, I kind of like that it was more of a, a partnership in, in the adventure. Mm, yes. Instead of one over the other. Okay, I'll quit talking. My husband's like, I want to talk to you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I get to be you, on this show too. <laughs> I don't even know why you ever let him talk, but go ahead.
2: Earlier, she had her hand over my mouth. But <laughs> was, yeah, I do agree that it it makes more sense for her to be the cab driver. I like that change in the character. Quite a bit. Instead of just, uh, you know, a woman sitting there on the bench and meets another guy sitting on the bench in the middle of the night. I, I liked that uh, the character was a, a bit, or at least the the way the actors played it was a, a bit spunkier. Mm-hmm. But actually I I found her a little annoying and I think it's just her squeaky voice I found a little irritating.
0: A little bit, mainly only at first because when we first meet her, she's hysterical because she almost runs over the amnesiac with her cap and she's, she's really angry about that. So at my very, very first impression was, uh, you're a little too much. But she, again, her character was hysterical at that point, and I thought later she was she was charming, funny, interesting, and as Aaron says, she's much she's much more part of the story. She's much more plausible in the story. It just it just made a lot less sense for the cultured woman in the first film to suddenly follow around this guy. It wasn't totally implausible either because. In that case, she she was kicked out of her house and or kicked out of her home and uh, and this guy was helping her and, and I guess she she fell in love with him but yeah I, I definitely like this character better. The reporter is Al Haley and he's played by Richard Lane who has a long list of movie and TV credits that stretch from 1932 to 1978. Erin has already revealed that she found this character even more annoying than the reporter played by Wallace Ford. What do you think, Josh?
2: I revealed that as well and I will reveal it again he is really irritating not just the um the actor playing him and, and probably more so just the the script for him they really uh, want him to be the comic relief of this thing yes yeah
0: there's only one point where I was
2: particularly annoyed by him otherwise I was fairly
0: neutral otherwise I I preferred I in fact I'll go ahead and say that I preferred most of the character actors in the first movie to
1: this one he just he was so when i say loud i mean yes. loud like a loud shirt loud yeah
0: yeah yeah. you know
1: and so he just he really detracted like and i did notice too in in this one the comedy as a whole the first one didn't seem very comedic to me at all but this one not only was there comedy, but the comedy was very forced. Yeah. And uh, it felt yeah. clunky. Yeah,
0: and I, I now I I didn't find that to be the case in, in all in all the film. Uh, in fact, I I definitely laughed more at this film than I did the other. But the worst moment in the whole film for any character was uh, the scene where where the inspector makes the reporter uh, lie down on the floor uh, so he could see what the uh, corpse looked like. And the the joke there was that the inspector wasn't letting him up to stand up. It was not funny. It was extremely annoying because you don't you don't get the feeling at all that the inspector had any power over the reporter to make him lie there. It right. Just, it, was, it was really that was the only part where I really found the movie or that character
2: particularly obnoxious. No. Oh, I think <laughs> it got worse. I mean, yeah, that moment was definitely irritating because it just kept going. Can I get up now? No. Can I get yeah. up now? No. And it was like, oh God, just stand up for the love of just God. Just stand up.
0: Yeah, it, I, I was thinking that the inspector should have at least put his foot on the guy. I mean, it wouldn't have Something. been any funnier but it would have been more plausible i didn't i didn't see why he couldn't get up under his own power it was so i,
2: I think it, it uh, toward the end or, or almost at the end he gets even more irritating when he's calling in his editor and his and his he and his editor have this little schtick between them. Oh, now that guy's the killer. Who's the killer now? And a pink elephant? I <laughs> the White and
0: the Seven Dwarfs? Yeah. But yeah. I gotta
1: admit, I I felt like the editor often throughout this movie. <laughs> so I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. <laughs> It was like you know, um, but yeah, the the reporter just shouldn't have been there. It just the whole thing made no sense to have him there, you know. And every time he'd go to touch a telephone and speak, I'd cringe. Uh, it yes. just. It...
0: <laughs> I I didn't feel that way. I, I was fairly neutral about their little about their little exchange.
2: Yeah, all those people getting shot, and that guy couldn't have been one of them. Yeah, I know. A
0: shame in, I know. in neither film. He didn't. The reporter in the first movie didn't have that much of a um interaction Mm, with his editor it was only
2: once
1: he was pretty annoying too (laughs) not like this i I
2: didn't find the first guy very annoying i mean there were jokes that didn't quite land but it wasn't like because the jokes were so small and 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 they weren't uh, integral to the the film i didn't feel like if I didn't laugh at it, it wasn't important. At least I wasn't right. rolling my eyes and cringing.
0: Right, and, and that's how I felt in the second one, except for that one scene where he um, he was lying down like a corpse. I just, that was not a good addition to the film at all. The inspector is Bill Brenner, and he's played by Emery Parnell. He originally performed as a concert violinist, uh, but switched to movie acting, playing a variety of roles, sometimes the same kind of mystified comp that he plays here. I was neutral about this character and this... Um, this man, I, I preferred seeing Alan Hale, maybe just because he was more recognizable, but I liked Alan Hale better.
2: Yeah, he's no skipper's dad.
0: No, mm. no, he's no skipper's dad. The girlfriend is played by Helen Carter. No, I'm sorry, the girlfriend is Helen Carter played by Jane Greer. Uh wait, this wait, is the
1: which which girlfriend? The,
0: this is the uh parallel to the Hoochie character in the okay. first film.
1: Got it. Thank you. Okay. Hoochie Hoochie 2.
0: Yes, Hoochie 2 played by Jane Greer. Uh she's credited as Betty Jane Greer, but her dominated, uh, domineering lover, Howard Hughes, made her shorten her first name for a later film. So that's why she's known now as Jane Greer. And she's best remembered as the femme fatale in Out of the Past with Robert Mitchum. Very much of a film noir, that movie. Uh, Any particular thoughts on uh, Jane Greer?
1: No, I I did find it funny when uh, the main character girl, the main girl, that's what I call her, just decided to join the table for two. She's like, I'm just going to sit down here. I love that. I that was love
0: hilarious. that. I love that too. I love that too. Yeah, uh, audience, we're talking about Taxi Driver again. Hey, the amnesiac Mitchell. and the girlfriend. Are, Mitchell, yeah, yeah. Are, the amnesiac and the girlfriend are sitting at at the table, and in the first movie, the amnesiac dismisses her, and they have the conversation alone. But in this film, he dismisses her, but she <laughs> she immediately comes back, which is so <laughs> much better. I like that so much better, and we get the interaction between Hoochie Two and the taxi driver. I. I I, I like that quite a bit. I was, I was really glad that that happened. Cause
1: yeah. I like that she was not embarrassed to kind of strongly hint that she liked this guy.
0: Yes, yes.
1: You know, she was okay with
0: that. Yeah, I think the other one was way too cultured to have made that move. So the suspicious stage actress this time is Barbara Borden. She's the um, parallel character to Olga Konar. In both movies, she is the starring actress in the play that our amnesiac goes to see before he he has the accident at Richard Denning's place. or not richard denning here it's a different name but um robert
2: dilling robert
0: dilling okay yes she's played by jean brooks she is best remembered for her trio of val luton horror films i mentioned earlier that tom conway is also well known for a trio of val luton horror films not the same ones but there was one in which the the two of them both paired any thoughts about Jean Brooks? Now remember, she gets uh, sort of spotlighted at the very end. She gets so, spotlighted at the end. She gets the close-up. She gets her own little scene where she gets to do her thing. And so you, maybe you have a particular thought about her since she, since she wasn't just a, a throwaway character.
2: I have no thoughts. Oh, okay,
0: no thoughts.
1: Yeah, it was just your typical confession. I'm dying. With scene, the same thing over. But and she over
2: gets there. shot in this one, where the other character doesn't get shot.
1: Well, and I don't even know if she dies or not. I want proof of death
2: that was yeah that was left a little unclear yeah i don't like it so the only thing important was uh, that she dies that was... well Aaron pointed out that she looked different enough from the other brunettes in the movie that it was easier to distinguish her
0: i'm glad you mentioned that i, I the first time i watched the movie i thought hoochie and suspicious stage actress were the same character
2: yeah Aaron actually thought that too and... oh
1: what klingon and hoochie yeah, because they both had this dark brown hair yes. and they were built about the same. And yes. so when you have this many people, it's, you know, that come and go, come and go like this and are only there for a few minutes. It really helps mm-hmm. to have something distinguishing to pull yeah. your eye.
0: Yeah, I, I really wish they had put a wig on one of them or something, but... <laughs>
1: I did think it was, I thought it was interesting, Stephen, that that they made it clear that the taxi driver was an actress or used to be an actress so that they could make some excuse for her to be pretty, because I guess taxi drivers can't be pretty. I thought that was just a weird thing that the writers seemed to feel the need to throw in.
2: I don't know if that's why they did it. I, I, I wouldn't I, have thought so, because the, the the reason why she was a stage actress is because she needed certain connections to explain things. Right. Understood, yeah. Why she understood uh, what play immediately, what play was showing there, who yeah. the guy who wrote that is, who the, you know.
1: Okay. Cause I don't think they did that necessarily. Okay. So they circumvented that in the first movie by having her just be an actress with. Right.
0: Right. Right. And, and yeah, I thought I, I didn't, I didn't get that impression. In fact, I immediately connected her in my mind with the, hot taxi driver in on the town a musical gene kelly frank sinatra's in that and he he plays the character who pairs with the hot taxi driver and, and,
1: um, and that's gene kelly uh
0: no no it's not no no they couldn't do that back then no <laughs> no
1: oh uh, i was just you know looking for some progress well of course yeah, there's
2: a, a hot taxi driver in in uh, the tv show taxi yeah they're very have a lane s- yeah they have a lane that is Uh,
1: true well i stand corrected it'll be the only time ever but yeah okay I just it struck me as weird but now it makes sense
0: so we're done talking about the cast and uh this this one pretty much ends up the same way the, they also have the the plagiarizing playwright they have him seem to commit suicide but it turns out he's really murdered by the suspicious stage actress the Klingon Blonde,
1: the, no, Klingon. The blonde.
0: this yeah this time she's blonde this suspicious blonde but I thought this made a little more more sense this time because she wasn't married to to, to the guy that she wanted to conceal the love letters, the, the information about the love letters. It, it's, it's, it, audience, it's not worth going into full detail, but she killed Richard Denning or, or whoever he was in this one, Robert Dilling. She, she killed him because he had some love letters. He was blackmailing her. The blackmail made more sense the second time because it's clear in the first movie, she does not like her husband and he's jealous all the time for over everything and didn't seem to as make, make as much sense this time. Uh, this time she, she is in love with the person who she doesn't want to know about the love letters. I don't think they're married. So it, it made a little bit more sense this time, but- I oh, think
1: first, the first time she was just afraid of him.
0: Maybe, maybe. Maybe that's that's possible. That's possible. But I just I just bought it a little bit more uh, this mm-hmm. time. But here's my theory about what happened in both cases. It, at the time, the production code uh, forbade you from number one getting away with a murder, but number two, you were not allowed to commit suicide to, in order to escape the consequences of your crime. I, I won't I won't spoil the film, but uh, that that very much comes into play even into the fifties in 1956 with The Bad Seed. My theory, and it's only a theory since I haven't read the book, is that the novel just simply ended with him committing suicide, and that was it. And that wasn't allowed in 1936 in the movies. And so they added the extra tag there and the remake added the same tag because they, they still weren't allowed to have a suicide that in which uh, character escapes the consequences of his crime. Uh, what do you think? Or do you think it's more likely that the that the, that the tag ending was uh, in the novel as well?
2: I don't know which is more likely, but I think if your story is true, I think they still would have been better off with him not committing suicide. Yeah, of, Yeah, that's what it. I was
0: hoping would happen in the second film, that he simply would not commit suicide right but that's they know they they just repeated the same thing which i really didn't like but a lot of murder mysteries do have that you know that little twist at the end so it might have right. been in the novel it, it might have had nothing to do with the production code but but i i knew when he committed suicide that either they had gotten away with something or there was going to be more to it and it turned out there was more to it
1: yeah i don't know why the two of them just couldn't go to jail
0: yeah i, I don't i don't but know so, i
1: mean you couldn't have the fake shootout And the second one. That was very exciting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Were you excited about that?
1: I mean, when when the police like shot the handle and shot the door and clearly aiming (laughs) at nothing that was that was epic like
2: yeah Aaron, Aaron yelled out what the hell is he even shooting at <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't notice that
0: I also didn't notice a uh, goop that is mentioned in IMDB that uh, the bullet holes that kill the actress in the second one uh, they disappear in one of the shots I didn't, <laughs> I didn't notice that and I didn't go back to look at it but uh, I assume they're they're correct
1: uh, but did she really die because they talk about a doctor coming so you is, don't really know if she yeah, died possible. or went to jail
0: it's possible she didn't now she she according to the production code she would have been allowed to die because she paid for her crimes by being shot to death by the police it's just Uh she couldn't do it
2: herself yeah
0: bullets hurt
2: worse when they're shot at you by somebody else yes yes definitely
0: our director is Anthony Mann, who moved from B thrillers to A westerns with James Stewart, and and later in, in his career he uh, made two epics called El Cid and The Fall of the Roman Empire. His psychologically complex movies make him a favorite of film snobs. So this was Anthony Mann. He was he was the director here, and film snobs like the three of us, like you're going to become, Aaron, should no. Oh, you should still know the name of Anthony Mann. You may not necessarily need to know the name of the director of the first film, but Anthony Mann is. Very important to us film snobs and uh, people who are film snob adjacent like you. <laughs> this time, the adapted screenplay is by Robert E. Kent, whose movie and TV credits stretch from 1937 to 1970, but there was nothing that really stood out. First, thumbs up, thumbs down, and then the comparison, and then we choose which movie dies. Before, oh, before we do the thumbs up, oh, yeah, gonna, yeah,
2: go ahead. Go ahead. One more point to make is about how, in, in addition to the unfunniness, of the uh, nosy reporter, also the the extreme unfunniness of the bit with the the landlady. There was a, a brief period where I. Th- thought that we were watching Three's Company. She puts her ear <laughs> up against the door and they're talking about her taking off her suit. And she's like, oh no, <laughs> what's going on in there? And then they sneak around behind her and, and startle her in the bit at the end, which I'm glad that they had some sort of wrap up you know, instead of just abruptly ending like the first one. But right. I, I would take the first ending over this really unfunny ending and they put a, a do not disturb sign on her back. <laughs> oh my God. I, I just, I wanted to throw that out there because, you know, it, it's going to come into play about what I what I ultimately, where which direction my thumb points.
0: The basic bit the landlady herself was played by an actress who i who i thought was fine and i i I didn't i didn't mind the bit existing but the bit is that she's hearing things that make her think something sordid is going on but i couldn't figure out what she was thinking uh nothing they were saying sounded like it could be twisted to be sorted i don't really even
2: understand why it, it mattered because it they had already established to her that they were married so why is what what is her purpose for even listening
0: right i guess she's just a nosy busybody, and that's that's the joke and it it, it would have been a better joke had she had it made some sense about what what she was interpreting when she was listening i, I don't know what we were supposed to think she was thinking Right. It's very different from the episode of Three's Company where Mr. Furley listens in to Jack Tripper and uh, Chrissy putting up a shower curtain. What they say makes it sound as if uh, they're having sex in there. And that's what Mr. Furley hears. And in that case, we know what he's thinking, even though they're talking about something completely different. Yeah, here, I didn't know. I I don't know if it was censorship that caused, maybe the original dialogue was more suggestive. It it was more obvious what the landlady was thinking. But yeah, I I didn't really get the point of it 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 didn't annoy me too much but i didn't get the point of it to be honest i on the
2: other hand was
0: annoyed and i felt sorry for her for having that do not disturb sign on her back because i just imagined that she was close to death she probably died with it on she was buried
2: with it the landlady right and that was censorship that she originally had a kick me sign on the back of her mm. uh, she was kicked down the stairs and died that was in the novel
0: <laughs> uh, and i'm glad you mentioned the complaints about the humor because the reason i liked tom conway just a bit less is that i didn't like how he played up the humor in his scenes where he was more flustered the amnesiac doesn't know what's going on obviously when he's talking to people and he has to wing it the First actor played it more subtly, but Tom Conway was sometimes played it like I mean, what I mean is, you know, like that. I didn't, I didn't like
2: that. Well, he did have am, um, am, am, what's it, what's it, what's it called? Am something. Oh, it- <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I was referring to one of my other least favorite funny moments when Patty Mitchell cannot remember the word amnesia, am yeah. something, she says. Yeah. You know, it's, it's oh, not implausible yeah, that yeah. she would
0: have forgotten it. Uh, Cause I think the word was a little less common back then, but yeah, just the way she plays it just wasn't funny she
2: can't remember the word amnesia yeah, it's and ironic.
0: The, and the first i'm glad they didn't try that gag with the first one because the the the, the cultured woman not remembering amnesias would be very silly um <laughs> yeah i didn't I didn't feel that really worked either but I don't know we we criticized this film a lot but I quite liked it and I gave it a, th- a thumbs up I will give it a thumbs up. Oh,
1: this one's hard for me. I, gosh, I really liked the leading lady in yeah, this one, too. but the reporter and the humor was so awful it just wiped out everything good she brought to it so this Mm. one's a thumbs down for me
2: okay I I felt like the improvements on this one from the original weren't enough to uh, balance out the uh, additional bad humor and the few other things that I liked better about the first one so I'm also going to give this one a thumbs down in the case of you two it's obvious which one you're going to pick to die you are going to kill off two o'clock courage my vote wait 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 how do you know which way aaron would go since she gave a thumbs down to both of them oh
0: oh i forgot i forgot i'm sorry no i only know your
2: vote aaron's opinion doesn't matter because she's a girl she doesn't get a vote for who dies and who lives she's too cultured she's not enough of a street
0: taxi driver type (laughs) that i respect oh okay i I forgot that for some reason i thought you gave the first one thumbs down Yeah.
1: are we not allowed to do that is that against the
0: rules (laughs) no it's not against the rules then there's also no rule against a donkey playing baseball
2: either just so you know
1: so if i had to pick one to die because so josh you've already picked yours uh because i have
2: one thumbs up one thumbs down obviously i'm i'm choosing uh the second one to die as much
1: as it pains me. I I, I picked the second one to die. It's the humor. It's the kick me sign. And it's it's <laughs> kick
2: me sign. <laughs> and,
1: and, and the reporter. I mean, my,
2: my, my made up version of what the novel says has really influenced her yeah. opinion of this film.
1: No, I mean, but yeah, the honestly, the reporter is 99% of my choice here. So mm. if you had pulled mm. him out, I would have gone the other way.
0: Okay, I am going the other way. This one is faster. It's funnier, and now that we criticize the humor so much, I wish I, I wish I'd actually written down the points where I laughed. I laughed uh, several times, but it, it was it was moments that were uh, much less forced than the ones we were talking about. It wasn't mm-hmm. involving the do not disturb sign. It was, but this was faster. I, I, I just I just love that the opening scene was so much more dynamic because the taxi driver almost runs him down, and that's how they meet. Whereas in the first film, they're just moving from park bench to park bench, which is right. uh, far less exciting. This was faster, funnier, and I, I'm pretty sure it's easier to follow, but it's difficult to say since I already knew pretty much what the story was going to be. Uh, but I mo- most of your criticisms I agree with, but I am definitely going to go with a Two O'Clock Courage as the one to survive. And the first one, Two in the Dark to die. Uh, you're so, outvoted. Yeah, you it looks like I'm outvoted. Two in the Dark, 19. 19- 1936 is... No, no, no. No, 2 <laughs> O'Clock Courage, 1945, is dead. And Two in the Dark will survive. Thank you very much for listening to our very first episode. And thank you very much to my uh, wonderful co-hosts, Aaron Paris and Josh Sperling. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Join us next time when we'll be reviewing Hillbilly Blitzkrieg from 1942. You've been listening to This Movie Must Die. It off. Oh, it off.
1: oh, is he still there? He's still